Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher, where we discuss everything that brings us life. Come join the fun, we're talking about our lives. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher. This is your host, Shannon Fisher. And I've got a great guest today, a historian named Doris Weatherford. And she has written a book entitled Victory for the Vote the fight for women's suffrage and the century that followed. It is jam-packed with information, uh, history about the women's suffrage movement. And she has written a lot about the advancement of women's rights since women finally got the right to vote a hundred years ago. So I'm excited to, uh, to have her share some of this information with you. Doris Weatherford, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. So I understand that you, you you wrote the history of women's suffrage about 20 years ago, and you decided to re-release that and add a lot of additional history. Uh, t- tell me why you decided to do that. Because it needed attention again. Uh, I had written it originally for the 150th anniversary of the Seneca Falls Convention, which mm-hmm. you may know was the first call for the right to vote in Seneca yes. Falls, New York in 1848. So it had come out then. We'd had a big celebration in Sandwich Falls, thousands of people there, including Hillary Clinton. Uh, And it got a lot of attention at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, about a year ago, I started looking around at the current state of feminism in the political scene. And I said, this book needs to be read again. (laughs) So to uh, make a, uh, to interest a publisher in uh, reissuing something that was 25 years old, Mm -hmm. uh, I did the second part, adding, and the century that followed. And that is really new information, much of it, for lots of people. Sure, sure, absolutely, yes. It it would amaze me that a publisher would not be interested in publishing this. I mean, history never goes out of style, and there definitely has been a a resurgence in women's rights activism uh, and in in all sorts of activism. And and one thing that, as I was was reading your book, there are a lot of different movements that intersect and work together and then kind of branch off. And the, the fight for the Black vote was going on at the same time as the fight for the women's vote. So tell me a little bit about the historical link between the two and and what happened when that went awry. The current PR has kind of um, misinformed people on that. Uh, Black women were involved in the original suffrage movement from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Sojourner Truth gave her Ain't I a Woman speech that's very famous. She gave that at the third national Women's Rights Convention in 1853, and she was involved. There were other black women involved. Uh, I can name a a dozen, but I'll I'll do one, one example. At the 1905 International Convention that was in Berlin, Mary Church Terrell, a black woman of Washington, D.C., delivered a speech in German, French, and English. Amazing. Amazing. And people have no idea. They have, uh, even black people, have forgotten these achievements and want to think that they were oppressed consistently. And they were, uh, 
especially in the South. But there were exceptions, and there 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 were from all through it leaders who uh, who were black who worked for the right to vote. Um, here in Florida, Mary McLeod Bethune registered people to vote, mm-hmm. and. Um, when white people in Jackson, well, I'll say white man in Jacksonville, uh, objected to that, she was protected by families who lived in the wealthy area uh, uh, along the coast there, uh, the Procter and Gamble family, the um, the um, Rockefeller family. Uh, all those folks made it known to these rednecks, you you attack her, you can expect to hear from us. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so... It is a myth that black women didn't vote uh, or weren't involved in the movement. They did. Uh, in the 20s, they dropped back, and so did everybody else. The 20s mm-hmm. were a very conservative, repressive period when the Klan revived and, and attacked liberals of all sorts, uh, black and white. So the 1965 Voting Rights Act was absolutely necessary. Uh, getting rid of the poll tax was necessary. But it is not true that, in a legal sense, a black women ever were excluded. They they always had the right to vote under the 19th Amendment along with white women. Absolutely. And prior to that, when the 15th Amendment was ratified, I think that was that that was something that really disheartened women because, uh, the you know, they had been fighting alongside black men and women for, you know, suffrage for everyone. And when the 15th Amendment was ratified, it didn't even address women. And so that really kind of diverged the two. And and I think that there also was a lot of, you know, racism in the women's suffrage movement. There are so many dynamics that have gone on. And that just reminds me of all of the talk about intersectionality in in, in the modern, uh, you know, activism. And there and there are so many groups that fight amongst themselves when we're really all fighting for the same rights. Yes. I'm glad you brought up the 15th Amendment because that was very true. The 15th Amendment was intended by Congress to give black men who were former slaves the right to vote, but it does not have any word about gender in it. There's no male. Uh, And uh, so women in about a dozen different jurisdictions all over the country tested that all the way from California to South Carolina. They went to their local polls and tried to vote, and the guys in charge said, well, we know it doesn't limit it. It doesn't say male voter, but everybody knows it means male voter. Mm -hmm. And uh, so a woman named Virginia Minor in Missouri and that's another point. Uh, our, our history is written so that there's only room for one or two women. So everybody knows Susan B. Anthony and um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and that's about it. Right. Uh, but Virginia Minor went went all the way to the Supreme Court arguing that uh, the St. Louis Registrar should have registered her because this amendment uh, just guarantees the rights of citizens, and she was a citizen, and she paid taxes, and the Supreme Court then was extremely conservative, and mm-hmm. in their decision on this, they they literally quoted the Bible more than the Constitution. They, you know, this is not natural. Women should be at home. Uh, uh, 
uh, various quotes from the Bible about women's inferior place. And um, uh, so after we lost that court case there in 1873, there was no alternative ex except to pass a constitutional amendment. That's the only way you can return a Supreme Court decision. Right. Passing a constitutional amendment, which is something that has been very much left out of the, the modern equation with Roe v. Wade. Nobody talks about a constitutional amendment because they know they can't pass it. Instead, yeah. they're they're counting on the court to reverse itself. Anyway, voting, like reproductive rights, is controlled by states. So meanwhile, uh, more and more states did adopt the vote for women, beginning with the Wyoming Territory in 1869, and by 1917, when the when New York became the first eastern state to grant the vote, every western state except New Mexico, women were enfranchised. Mm -hmm. So it, it was very regionalized, with uh, some rights in some places and no rights in other places, and full rights and still others, uh, very complicated. And, and, and what it meant, and what Roe v. Wade overturning may mean, is that you gained or lose lost rights based on where you live. Mm -hmm. Across, uh, from, from Texas into uh, Missouri, you could vote in Texas, but not in Missouri. And and on and on. That yeah. Um, and uh, that's and so to to get it federalized to to get this Nineteenth Amendment passed, the uh, World War One uh, actually played a large role in that uh, in getting the legislators to pass it. So tell tell us a little bit about that. Yep, that that is very true. Thank you for bringing it up. Uh, although war is tragic. For women, it has been a great source of liberation, all wars, mm -hmm. uh, because women have to do things in wars that they weren't permitted to do before, and they prove to themselves and to others that they're capable of that. Right. So uh, I, I've written two books on World War II, which had tremendous liberating effect on women because we needed women uh, to build the ships and the planes and so forth. Of course, as soon as the war was over, they lost those jobs. But they demonstrated that they could do them, and they had the self-confidence to move ahead in, in, in other ways. There are so many issues, and they get so intertwined, uh, or don't sometimes. Uh, but let me just give you an example there. In that same era of World War II, in many, many states, women could not serve on juries. And that has a tremendous effect, especially on rape trials. And that was the reason, I think, why why states didn't put women on juries, uh, especially southern states. They, mm -hmm. they wanted to protect their pure womanhood. They wanted to uh, not let women know about these horrible things. And they wanted to get away with it. You know, right. they, they 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 thought a man was more likely to see this in um, boys being boys kind of terms. And uh, so they didn't want women on the juries. There were 16 states that did not allow juries, uh, allow women on juries at all 
in that era unless you, in some states you could go down and and uh, volunteer and uh, kind of insist on your right to be included and you know how popular that's going to make you right um, <laughs> but the Supreme Court didn't overturn that until the 1960s and and at that time there were still three states that banned women from juries altogether and they were all in the south uh so there yeah. is a lot of regionalism that comes into this. And yet, at the same time, the northern states are not nearly as pure and holy as they think they are. Uh, the states that, that should have ratified the 19th Amendment and didn't uh, were Vermont and Connecticut. And mm-hmm. that was the reason why Carrie Chapman Cat had to go down to Tennessee and West Virginia for the last two states because the Republican governors in Vermont and Connecticut refused to call them sessions. That is, uh, it, it really is the, the process of getting a constitutional amendment passed in the United States is such a complicated process from, you know, both houses of Congress to two thirds of the states ratifying it. It really takes yep. uh, a, a movement that almost everyone can agree with in order to, to yeah. get this passed. And this was yep, certainly but, something that everyone did not agree with at the time. Yeah, that's why it took so long. That's why yeah. it took so long. But we have to give tremendous credit uh, to to those who followed it out, not just the pioneers back in the 19th century, but um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, but also in the 20th century. And I think especially Carrie Chapman Cat is overlooked. She was a brilliant, brilliant organizer to get two-thirds of both houses of Congress and three-quarters of both states, three-quarters of the states, with both chambers of a legislature. So you're yeah. talking literally hundreds, you know, getting them past committee meetings, uh, et cetera, literally hundreds of campaigns that had to be won to get there. And uh, it, it took tremendous strategy, tremendous leadership, tremendous amounts of money. Uh, yeah, definitely. And, and blood. I mean, I mean it, it, it amazes me that women were beaten and some were killed, but protesting for the right to vote. I mean, you, you just don't think that there would be that much uh, rabid opposition, but there really was. Yes. In some ways, though, it wasn't so much opposition to that narrow topic. It was misogyny in general, which we still have. Right. Uh which manifests itself most often in rape, but you 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 still see uh, blatant misogyny in in men who are just sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beyond that, there there were powerful economic interests that didn't want the vote. Um, uh, most of the well, not most of it. Yeah, I think most of, most of the opposition was funded by the liquor industry. Uh, because they didn't want the the reform. Um, uh, the 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 conservatives, the people who wanted things to stay the way they were, typically uh, corrupted voting. Much 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 more corruption than we have today. And it was not at all uncommon for a guy to, even somebody who wasn't a citizen, and a lot of non-citizens voted. Uh, they'd buy him a drink and at the saloon. He'd go over and cast the ballot 
and then go to the next town and buy another drink and cast another ballot. And uh, many yeah. of these people couldn't even read English, and they had slates of candidates. Ballots were um, uh, arranged by slate. So if you put in a paper that had a donkey in it, you were voting for all the Democrats. If you put in one with an elephant, uh, you're voting for all the Republicans. And it didn't even matter if you knew the candidates or were capable of marking a ballot. So yeah. compare that to today. Um, well, and compare that to Jim Crow when they, you know, added all of these uh, poll tests to um, to 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 keep black women and men from qualifying to, to vote. And so it so it went from being immensely easy for all men to vote to mm -hmm. making it almost impossible. And we're we're suffering with mm -hmm. some. Uh, some some voting rights issues today. So tell me a little bit about the historical context of the voter suppression that we're having right now. Yes, yeah. yeah. More than any other organization, the League of Women Voters has had a tremendous impact on improving democracy. The League formed straight out of the suffrage movement. Uh, the first president was Carrie Chapman Catt, who had led the, the victory, and uh, they immediately went to work on changing laws and the way the system works, and uh, over the last century have had our elections are much more honest and inclusive than they used to be. Most definitely. Yeah, and that is that is that is a it's a it's it's a very good thing. There are many many battles to follow, and and so speaking of of battles to follow, after the Nineteenth Amendment was ratified, Alice Paul then wrote the ERA in 1923, and it here we are almost a century later, and it has not been ratified. And I um I, I've actually been part of the I live in Virginia, and I've been part of the you know fight to, ah. to get ratified in Virginia. And so mm -hmm. we, um, you know, we finally managed to do that with this last General Assembly session. Mm -hmm. uh, but and, yep. and we we would officially be the, you know, the, the final state needed to ratify it. But because the deadline was imposed, um, it, it, mm -hmm. it renders it somewhat null, uh, unless mm -hmm. we can get Congress to extend the deadline yep. retroactively. So tell me a yep. little bit historically about how and why from 1923 until 2020, we have not been able to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed. I think uh, in large part, it was because um, the progressives of the time opposed it. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, the you know you, you said earlier um, divisions between groups strategies and goals and um, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt and her followers opposed the ERA because they had spent a lifetime in social work working for legislation to protect women limiting mm -hmm. the hours that women could be forced to work uh, uh, etc. And all this legislation was written by gender uh, and um, was deliberately designed to protect women from the meanness of capitalism at that sure. time. Sure. Yeah. And so if you passed the ERA, those laws would be nullified. Now, the obvious thing to do 
would have been to extend to men the same labor legislation. But right. uh, that was too much of a bite. So basically, the the strategy became uh, taking things one at a time. And uh, uh, one example is the Cable Act, which nobody has ever heard of. But until... <coughs> I'm sorry, I have to cough again. hope this is not COVID. <laughs> I hope so, um, too. I hope so, too. Yeah. Uh, uh, until the 19th Amendment. And, of course, the 19th Amendment was just the vote. It wasn't other rights. But one of the first things that, that the League took up after the 19th Amendment was, uh, it's called the Cable Act for the senator who sponsored it. But until then, if a married, I'm sorry, if a foreign man married an American, he automatically endowed her with her his citizenship. Um, mm -hmm. And the reverse was true. If a foreign woman married, I'm sorry, if an American woman married a foreign man, she automatically lost her U.S. citizenship. Ah. Uh, yes. So the Cable Act was designed to change this. And this is a kind of complicated story, but I think it's worth it. The very first woman from the South who was elected to Congress was uh, Ruth Bryan Owen, and she was the daughter of William Jennings Bryan. Everybody knows him. Yeah. Uh, her mother was also an extremely smart woman, and her mother led the, the effort for the vote here in Florida after the two of them retired to Miami from living in Washington. Mm -hmm. So Ruth had had a very complicated life. She uh, and her second husband turned out to be uh, a British military officer, and mm -hmm. she lived with him, traveled with him, and was involved in World War One in in Egypt. Uh, she nursed in Egypt while he was stationed there. Huh. So he died, and she came back to live with her parents, and by then had four children. And she ran for Congress in 1926, lost by just a handful of votes, uh, ran again in 1928, and won. Hmm. Perfect. And when she, got, when she got to Congress, the guy that she had defeated, an incumbent, argued on the floor of the House that she should not be seated because she had been married to this British man and therefore had lost her citizenship. You know, I hear stunning. <laughs> I, hear stunning. I, mean, I mean, it's just it, it, it never ceases to amaze me. The lengths to which people will go to yeah. to attain yeah. power and to hold withhold power from those who seek yeah. it. It's amazing. Yes. Yes. And the legalisms that they will resort to. And, 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 and so many people say, well, that sounds smart. That's got to be right. Uh when it may be right legally and is so wrong morally. Morally, right. As it turned out it wasn't right e legally either, but he, he made the argument and some people took his side. Yeah, um, yeah. It's fascinating how, I mean, there are so many individual stories that add up mm -hmm. to complete the, the, the history of where we are right now. It could, it could, it could fill volumes and volumes and volumes. And I, yeah. um, 
but I, I, I really recommend everyone out there to, to read this book. I mean, it's so, so fascinating. Now, uh, as a foreword for this book, you had House Speaker Nancy Pelosi write the foreword for this. Um, and, and she talked about the, the rights that are still being, being fought. So, so tell me a little bit about what is going on legislatively now, um, the rights that are still being fought for for women. Well, everybody's just holding their breath until next Tuesday. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and we hope to not be so much on the, the defense as we have been. But what I tell people is that uh, women's history, all history, the history of democracy, is a, is a mountain range. You have peaks and you have valleys. And we have been going through a valley, and I think we're about to climb up again on the edge of the mountain. Yeah. But I don't know. We could fall backwards. I know. And it, it seems there is always a, there's a backlash. I mean, there was the, you know, the, the, the Me Too movement that came out, and, and, and suddenly sexual harassment and assault was in the, the forefront of culture. And then there seems to be now a, a backlash against that. And so it, it is, it's a yeah. push and a pull. And you talked about the KKK resurging in the, the 1920s after, mm -hmm. you know, all, all of these advancements had been made um, in, in human rights and activism prior to that yep. and and yep. the the push and pull in society it seems like yep. the, the the way of progress yep and they're always there uh uh the kkk used the same name as the ultra right earlier and in between we had um, um the john birch society and other things of that sort and now they call themselves the Proud Boys and the Alt-Right and so forth. Uh, they're always out there, the people who Hitler types, authoritarians, uh, who I think are psychologically sick. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we need much, much more attention to mental health, especially among boys. Um, Schools have, <laughs> schools have taken up anti-bullying campaigns in the last couple of decades, but I remember when that campaign was new and uh, people said, well, you know, uh, schools are busy enough teaching math and science. Uh, we, we so much need to teach psychology. Well, the so-called hard sciences are not hard at all compared to the soft sciences of psychology and sociology and, and even history. Definitely. I mean, our, our, our children grow up to be contributing members of society. And if they if they don't have a, a strong foundation emotionally, then then society can can run amok for sure. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And and too much of what is taught is taught from uh, a, a point of view that's almost indoctrination. You're supposed to be patriotic. You're supposed to sit down and shut up and uh, the guys who are in charge are perfect. We've never made a mistake as a nation. That It's better than it used to be. But when mm -hmm. I was young, uh, almost all history was taught from the point of view of America's always right and everybody else is always wrong. And you don't yeah. solve international problems that way. It's true. It's true. We need to take an honest look at our at ourselves and our actions. I mean, both as individuals and as a nation and and as states. It's a symbiotic relationship that the individual, the state, the nation and 
and we can't have a, a, a fully functioning government unless we are we are all at our best. The Miami Book Fair. So tell me a little bit about uh, your your appearance. Well, it'll be virtual this year, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, I have I have been in the past, and it's it's just a such a delightful affair in downtown Miami on the streets near Miami-Dade College, uh, a three-day affair with people like Jimmy Buffett and Carl Hyacin and just great, great fun. So yeah, I hate the fact that it's virtual this year, but it has to be. Absolutely. Yeah. And I encourage all of the listeners to uh, to go 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 virtually to the Miami Book Fair. There are so many uh, wonderful authors and, and that's how I got connected with you. And I am very grateful for it. So, um, again, the name of the book is Victory for the Vote, the Fight for Women's Suffrage and the Century that Followed. Well, Doris Weatherford, I thank you so, so much for being on the show today. This was very enlightening. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it also. This is Shannon Fisher. See you next time.